Hello and welcome to Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely deep literary merit, with your classy and sophisticated hosts, Alexandra Rowland, Freya Mask, and Jennifer Mace. On today's episode, we're discussing An Unkindness of Ghosts by Rivers Solomon, the Snowpiercer movie, the original one, and To the Victor the Spoil by Anakovsky. Hello and welcome to episode 88, Singing a Song of Angry Men. I'm Alex, and in The Hunger Games, I'd be from District 8, Textiles. I'm Freya, and I'd be from District 3, Technology. I'm Macy, and I would be from District 10, Livestock. Because of your misspent youth as a frozen meat salesperson. Of course, of course. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah. Yeah. We are three red-headed <laughs> fantasy authors who did not once manage to say, District, aren't you proud of us? I very, I got very close to saying District. There is a big... There is a very big choral piece called Dixit Dominus, and yes. you get 13-year-olds to sing Dixit repeatedly, uh, and that is entertainment for many bus rides. Wonderful. Today, Dixit, we're, Dixit we're Dom, cramming Dom, all our banter into the beginning of this episode, because this is going to be a... it's going to be a shocker. It's going to be a shocker. It's going to be a dark one. This is going to get pretty serious. We might be able to cram some gallows humor in here and there. I have faith in our ability to do that. Mm, we'll see. We're talking about social stratification, and um, it yeah, it's gonna get fucking inequality, terrible, and... terrible, yeah, and we, dark uh, and I, grim. I, I apologize to my fellow serpents for extreme Oof. downers across all ten extreme poles. Downers. Extreme, <laughs> downers. extreme downers, extreme downers. <laughs> they're great. They're taught. They're fine. That's how you know that we have deep literary merit because we talk <laughs> because about we talk about downers. You want to cry? Really fucking yes. depressing. Yeah. Gosh. Anyway, <laughs> they're very good though. Before we get into all of that, what are we reading, fellow serpents? <laughs> for our last little well, glimmer not, of like, lightness and joy, crying into our tea. <laughs> I have found a lot of joy in what I've been reading recently. So I, good. yeah, good, exactly. Good. <laughs> so I have read the new book by Zen Cho, Blackwater Sister, Ooh. which is a contemporary fantasy set in Malaysia. And it's about a young woman called Jess who goes back to Malaysia with her parents after she graduates and suddenly starts being haunted by her dead grandmother who wants her to get revenge Amazing. on a gangster for her. Amazing. It's great. It's really good. It reminds me of my favorite of Zen Cho's works, which is her short story collection, Spirits Abroad. Mm. And so obviously it's got a lot of that really local sense from Malaysia and a lot of things to do with Chinese ghosts and gods. And I thoroughly enjoyed that. I also... And we know that Freya loves the haunting of an old lady. Oh, yes. I, I sent I sent Zoe some messages. Being, I sent, sorry. I sent Zen some messages about... Uh, young women, young queer women being haunted by cranky old ladies and its relevance yes. to the book that I have been writing. <laughs> uh, I was then lucky enough to get my hands on an arc of the new oh. Catherine Addison book, The Witness <gasps> for the Dead, yes. which is set in the same world as Serpent Favorite, The Goblin Emperor. Yes. And this is a story which features one of the minor characters in The Goblin Emperor. And it is a lot of mysteries woven together. It's quite a short mm. book and I expected it was going to do one straightforward murder mystery because in this world, a witness for the dead is somebody who speaks for and advocates for and is the voice on earth of someone who has mm -hmm. died, especially if it's unclear how they died and why. So they're sort mm -hmm. of 
investigators of murder or investigators of death. Mm-hmm. And this character ends up investigating one particular murder, but along the way there are a couple of other subplots and mysteries that get woven through. It does a lot of really amazing mystery structure in a very short space, while also having that lovely like dependence on human kindness and what is it that makes a, a person worthwhile and how do you exist in the world that Goblin mm-hmm. Emperor does really well. So if you liked Goblin Emperor, you will almost certainly like this, especially if you like a bit of a mystery. And it certainly has a bit more of a story engine that pulls you through than Goblin Emperor does. <laughs> I also read Girl, Woman, Other by Bernadine Evaristo. This is the book that tied for the Booker Prize winning with the Testaments a couple of years mm. ago. Oh, there's a cat. We have to pause the fail. Yes, pause, we have to pause cat. because cat. Cat, cat. No, cat, cat objects. We're going to have to leave cat. that meow in, Alex. I, I yeah, there's definitely going to have to be like a, me- a meow just to punctuate. <laughs> Are we good? Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> Freya, continue. Anyway. Girl, woman, other. Booker Prize. Girl, woman, other. Booker Prize. Uh, this is not science fiction fantasy. It's not romance. It is a literary novel, but I absolutely loved it. It's very chatty, very, very character focused. So it tells the story of, I think, 12 intertwined people's stories and a lot of them are friends of each other or mothers and daughters and a lot of it has to do with being a black woman in Britain Mm. and Mm -hmm. what it's like for people today but also the last couple of generations and it's written in a a quite a literary style in that there's not a lot of capitalization and real sentences it's almost like a very very long (laughs) prose poem but it's super readable and I flew through it I had a lovely time I really connected to the characters and it's just a really really good read so I recommend that even if you're somebody who's not super into literature with a capital L, uh, this was very approachable and really fun. And I just love the character work that it was done. And finally, I read the new Courtney Milan romance novel called The Devil Comes Courting. And this was not quite as fun and delightful as her last one, the one that was set in the small village and you know, it was about a game, basically. This one is a little bit more serious, but it's about laying telegraph wire in the ocean. And she described mm. it when she was writing it as her Internet on Boats book, because it's about two <laughs> people attempting to find out a way to transmit Chinese characters via telegraph and how mm. do you do that. And so it's got a lot of you know sad backstory and who are you? And one of the main characters is a... Chinese woman who was adopted by an English missionary woman and so there's a lot in about her identity and the way she comes to question what she's been told about her upbringing and where she came from and her attempt to find her biological family but mostly it's about two people sexting on boats via telegraph <laughs> anyway, I trust Easy. Courtney Milan with my life I love of this course. book definitely check it out <laughs> Wonderful. Amazing. Macy, what have you got? Very nice. Macy, this past fortnight, what have I read? I finally finished uh, Empress of Forever by Max Gladstone, mm. which is a doorstopper of a space hijink book, um, wherein lesbian Elon Musk goes Very to good. an alternate <laughs> galaxy and quests to take down the empress of the entire universe together with like a female pirate queen version of Goku from Dragon Ball. Do we and like female Elon Musk? 
Yes, Vivian Liao. She, she's great. Okay. Vivian is great, um, but also terrible. Um, because <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Max, and he's great yeah. at this. Um, yeah. And she falls for the soft village girl who they rescue from a planet that's genetically modified to be great at flying ships. Mm. Um, and that spends a lot of time like dissolved into component atoms while yeeting across the universe. It's very... Lots of very strange things happen in mm. this book, but it's great. And okay. I don't know how he does that. Max is a wizard, is how. Mm. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a lot of adventures, like adventure vignettes, kind of, strung mm. together. And okay. very weird shit. Um, and other than that, I have read 11 million words of Persona Jesus. 5 fanfic. Are you serious? Um, Wait, hold on, no. hold on. I, I have I, not I, actually I, read 11 million words of Thank God. I can't really million. trust you. She could have actually been telling the truth. She could have, she could have been telling end. the truth. <laughs> uh, well, I finished Marigolds, which was the 480,000 word. Okay. Um, so maybe like 2 million. No, so, and then since Marigold, I've probably only read, like, 300,000 words of Persona fic. Okay. And some Avatar fic, and some Rogue One fic. I mean, you say and... some Avatar fic. You could have reread the entire Embers. We don't know. We don't know. We don't know. Embers <laughs> we can't trust me... you, Macy. <laughs> Embers takes me, like, two weeks to reread, and I wouldn't have reread mm. much of anything okay. else. Embers, dear listeners, by Vathara is 700,000 words long. Yeah. Something like that. But more anyway. importantly, more yes. importantly, I watched 32 episodes of Hikaru no Go. Welcome Yay. to being able to watch things again. Congratulations. I, <laughs> I can only watch things if they're on my laptop, which is deeply unfortunate sure. in multiple ways. Um, but I have currently paused because the pain episodes are about to hit me upside the head with a bat. And so yeah. I'm just like chilling in mm-hmm. the calm waters right before the rapids. And yeah. it's great here. And yeah. I don't know that I'm going to go over the lip anytime soon. Uh, but I'm going to have to because I want the slash fic. I, I just sure. skim, I skim watched the pain episodes because I found them to be so gratuitous that I was just like, this is bullshit. They <laughs> so were. I just skim watched. <laughs> Very painful. Just occasionally would just pull it forward by 10 minutes and be like, oh, he's still crying. Okay. He's still crying. Keep, keep going. <laughs> I mean, it can't be worse than that one episode of The Untamed, which shall only ever be referred to as Crying in Boats, Yeah, the episode. Yeah. Crying in Boats, the episode. Yes, it indeed. It was literally a whole well, episode. Anyway, moving on. While Macy was busy magically regaining her ability to watch things, I coincidentally to read? was able to read things again magically. Um, I listened to, I was still doing my knitting project, so I listened yes. to uh, three audiobooks, one of which was one of the tentpoles for this episode. Uh, yes. I also listened to A Winter's Orbit by Everina Maxwell, which yep, we yep, yep. Use, we formerly tentpoled in its previous incarnation. We uh, did. This is a queer, romantic science fiction novel, and uh, it has some political intrigue, and it has some like creepy alien artifacts, and it has this like really 
um, wonderful arranged marriage that is just very compelling and grows into like this beautiful, beautiful romance. I love them so we much. We love them. We, we love, love them. them. Uh, I, I listened to The City of Blades by Robert Jackson Bennett, which is the sequel to, what is it? A City of Miracles? Stairs? City of Stairs. Stairs. City of Stairs is the first one. Yeah. City did you, of Miracles did you is like the third. my terrible general? I loved the terrible general. Oh my God. I love her. You know, She's the best. You know that part of Alex Rowland's brand is like terrible... Yeah, yeah, yeah like gremlin competent, women. competent military women uh yeah, and yeah, here this. here's one of them uh she's great i love her this is about like killing gods and shooting them we love that shooting like giant 50 foot tall like god mechas with a single pistol because you're just that much of a badass yep uh yep. good shit good book uh it's a good book it's I, also about like tidal reconstruction of a ruined yeah. port yeah, and like cities underneath the waves and all sorts of great shit. Um, uh, I started a new Chinese drama called The Imperial Coroner, which uh, mm-hmm. just came out recently. It is about a very cute, cute, sweet uh, chocolate chip of a girl uh, who <laughs> becomes becomes an imperial coroner uh, and helps like the, I don't think he's a prince, but he's like the son of someone important and he has like titles and oh no he is a prince he is a prince uh, a and prince. they solve Everyone's mysteries they solve like mysteries and murders together uh the dubbing on this is very bad um but the script is quite good and the thing that i really like about it is that everybody who's supposed to be smart actually is smart and so huh. like like the cute sleuth character isn't the only person who is like making deductions and like having good intuition for things and solving puzzles. Like everyone around her is also solving puzzles. That's difficult. Um, That's so difficult to pull off. In it's very yeah. difficult to pull off. Yeah. Um, so very, very cool. I am only like six or seven episodes into it, but I am really enjoying it so far. Uh, and finally, I've sort of rushed through everything that I'm talking about so that I can spend a minute yelling about a book that I'm in the middle of reading with actual words, which... Dun, dun, dun. This is The Hands of the Emperor by Victoria Goddard. I need everybody to stop the podcast right now and go listen to it. Uh, it, Imagine The Goblin Emperor, but it's 900 pages long, and it is from the perspective of one of Maya's uh, servants, and um, absolutely fucking nothing happens. There is no plot in this book whatsoever. It's just people having feelings, and it is spellbinding. I am absolutely wrapped. I am about 28% into it. The only thing that has happened is that the emperor has gone on vacation and has hung out with some of the locals, and like they're making friends. Um, and and I've been brought to tears. I've been brought to tears. I have been brought to tears on multiple occasions, and I'm I'm less than 30% of the way through the book we do you have any questions the, yeah are both of us are making the face that is like the emotive equivalent of the it's noise. like it reads like a romance it reads like a romance novel except the romance is actually just like a platonic friendship blooming between these two people who have known each other for decades it reads like a slow burn coffee shop <laughs> au yeah. and, look, and I it's don't just mind a book in which not much happens you know that we it fills my heart Lynn, but I think probably about just over 300 words is my limit for a book in which nothing happens. Or 300 pages. Yeah, sorry, 300 pages. <laughs> yeah. 300 words, done. That's it. <laughs> 300 pages is, I think, my limit. I think 900 pages of nothing happening is it's a little great. bit much. Well, it's the character building, right? Like nothing, quote unquote, nothing happens in a romance novel, right? Except How like 900 page romance long? novels to you know. <laughs> 
I need you both to trust me on this. I okay, need Alex, you both Alex. to trust me on this. Yes, Alex, Macy. my dear, my love, my darling. Come back when you've finished it and pitch it again. Yes. Okay, I will. I will definitely leave you the space to pitch it again. But at the beginning, with nothing happening, you need to finish it and come back. I'm it's sorry. good nothing. It's oh. good nothing. It's, oh, okay. It sounds I, lovely. We are being facetious. But also, lovely, that is a fucking lot of pages. pages long. <laughs> we'll come back and argue about this on probably the next episode is when I'll have it finished. So let's have a fucking episode um, yes. and get away from like the jokes and the giggles. We do want to provide some like serious warnings for this episode um and the tent poles all three of the tent poles are fucking downers as we <laughs> not to okay like they're very very good and like i don't want to to insult them by reducing them to mere quote unquote downers they, but also they, they deal with dark serious themes. dark dark themes yes so please be cautious of these tent poles look up the content warnings for them if you need them some of them include but are not limited to violence uh we may mention pedophilia in this episode uh there's depictions of slavery slavery cannibalism racism classism prejudice sexual assault forced prostitution gross bugs and pretty much everything else that you can think of so yeah just be careful um, and the other spoiler or the other warning that I want to provide is that we are going to be talking about the ends of mm -hmm. these tent poles. And so if you are concerned about spoiler warnings, um, please stop the episode now, go watch yep. or read the tent poles and then come back to it. Cause we kind of have to talk about the ends to have a I, useful discussion. Yes, Macy. I would also add a particular warning for child harm. Yes. Mm. Yes. Uh, for Which we may or may not get into, dear listeners, but that one in particular, I want Har to make sure you have a note of. Child harm, child death, everything. Everything is being content yeah. warned for in this, mm. in this episode. Anyway, the first tentpole that we're going to talk about is... The first, ep well, so the framing of this episode is societal stratification. Mm. So let's talk about the antebellum South. Um, specifically, let's talk about the amazing sci-fi book, which I reread for this episode. I read it for the first time several years ago, and it is very, very good. Um, mm. An Unkindness of Ghosts by Rivers Solomon. And this is a book about a generation ship the size of a world that has more or less recreated um, American chattel slavery uh, and kind of depending on which deck you're born on you are abused and mistreated mm -hmm. and uh, used for your labor and the labor of your body and basically seen as not not human mm. by the upper decks and the protagonist of this story is a young woman uh, named Asta and she is neurodivergent and queer and intersex and she is also black or at least the she is certainly both black in the context of her generation ship and in appearance and mm -hmm. so yes warnings for many things this is a book that digs into some really dark stuff but this is also yep. a book that makes use of genre to ask questions and interrogate history mm. and to make some very pointed observations about things that are difficult to do in something that's trying to be historical fiction i think mm. i want to say yep. mm. so how did you guys yes. find it this book was brilliant oh my god this book was breathtakingly good i love generation ships as a concept because like there's something about 
generation ships that is so inherently hopeful, right? You're building mm. something not for yourself, but to give to your children's children's children, like generations down the line, because you're mm -hmm. never going to see this other star that you're traveling to. And to contrast that kind of fundamental hopefulness with like the fundamental hopelessness of what this society has turned into was I thought just like extremely like riveting and and effective mm. mm -hmm. and when we were first coming up with this episode we were thinking about societal stratification in physical space being mm, used right. as a metaphor for the actual you know strata of the society and this one does a trope that I had to look up in tv tropes because I knew there would be a name for it and they call it layered metropolis mm. and that's the idea of a metropolis or oh, yeah, the physical a ship, the physical space having physical layers and right. your role in society and where you can go among those layers being yes. dictated by your role and this does that very very concretely with the yes. idea of the lower decks and the upper decks and Asta's privileges such as they are are bestowed upon her by somebody from the upper decks who says well I need her she's my physician's assistant um, mm -hmm. She can get a pass. She can come up into right. these upper deck areas if she's with me or if I've given and her then, permission. Mm. And then you contrast that with Giselle, who is Asta's uh, bunkmate um, and companion, friendship, friend since they were tiny, tiny children, um, who Asta tries to toe the line and work within the bounds just to, to kind of prevent harm to herself in many ways. And Giselle just shatters them. Giselle is profoundly traumatized by many things that have happened to her. And one of the ways that this is represented in the book is Giselle, you know, breaking into the different layers, going missing, using the ducts, which Asta does as well to an extent, but mm. never quite runs away to the extent that Giselle does. Yet this book has a lot to say about the ways in which stratification is and isn't permeable. Because mm. like like the, the abstract structure is very much saying you stay in your place, you stay in your place, period. Right. Uh, except there's all of these like little exceptions and places where people fall through the cracks. Like Giselle being able to break into different areas or Aster being given a pass because she is special in this way. She's helpful to someone. Or um, Aunt Melusine um, being hired as a nanny to the upper yes. classes. And so she gets to go up there and people... And the ways in which, like, certain people of the upper decks know their names and know people down there personally. Um, mm -hmm. So there's no perfect, like, rigid system, right? There's always, or like, like children who are born to women of the lower decks but are upper deck passing, I don't know what the, up, mm -hmm. like, the upper decks are very white-coated, right? Who right. Are, are passing enough to be adopted by um, upper deck families and, and taken up there. Mm, and it's saying that in a society like this where the stratification is so clear, your only hope of social mobility is either by buying completely in mm. and, and accepting that you can go up if you are useful to the people right. up there or by, by buying completely out and saying, well, where are the liminal spaces that I can use to get up and down and to do, do my own thing? knowing that you will be punished severely by the system if you are caught. Yes. It's not yes. to say that, well, oh, I'll go into the ducts and I'll go to the top and then I'll be able to exist there and it'll all be fine. Like there's this series, there's this, let me think of how to say this, there's an inbuilt sense of 
not futility because you're doing it for its own sake, but a recognition mm. that even if you can force your way up, it's not necessarily going to end well for you. You're just doing it to show that you're rejecting the system. Right. And I think that um, I want to say there are many points of view that are given small passages in this book and none of them are given, apart from possibly one to the lieutenant, to the members of the upper deck mm. other than Theo, who is, again, the, the white-passing son of... Uh, spoilers, as we said, of Aunt Melusine. Mm. Um, yeah. Which I had not remembered from the first time round, but I thought was very effective. And it is a book that is saying that people who are oppressed in this way are always living in the liminal spaces. There's mm. always, you cannot take that from a human being. Yeah. Right? You cannot take that urge to, to push back, to find ways to make enough space for yourself to exist. Um, yeah. There is and uh, disturbing detail around sexual assault. So skip the next 30 seconds if you want. There is a detail where Aster... Uh, uses a lubricant before going through the guard stations because she's aware that she might be raped mm -hmm. and yeah just as small a daily ways precaution that you find that she to protect takes. yourself yeah right yes yes hmm. but at the same time like the book had such a beautiful description of like even how in these crushing circumstances people were still human and they still mm -hmm. had spirit and they were still finding ways to take they to look after each other and to take small joys where they could uh like early in the book when they're eating all of that delicious food oh yes. my god the food descriptions in the book were incredible um and the beauty of rivers devised this system where there's a sort of uh, nuclear reactor sun in the center yes. of the ship mm -hmm. and yes. a sequence of kind of clockwork um i guess like almost like baskets or like decks that move around with all of the plants on it to regulate how much sun they get and it's absolutely gorgeous the yes. way that it's described yes mm. or like the small joy of like sitting in that quote-unquote sunshine and just like feeling it on your face um or telling stories or any of that yeah and I have pulled a thesis quote from each of our three tent poles because they all happen to have it. And mm. my thesis quote that I found from this one is where Theo, who is the doctor who's sort of in love with Asta, who's privileged uh, to a degree and is helping her, saying to Asta, who is kind of at the edge of breakdown, and he says to her, this is not sustainable. It is not the lieutenant, who's the villain. And Asta says back, no, it's kings, lots of kings, kings for days. Theo says to her, it is the kingdom itself. Basically, it doesn't matter mm. about a single bad actor, a single guard, the single person who has yeah. oppressed you that day. It's the whole it's the system. system. Mm. Yeah. Right? It's, it's yeah. the fact Oof. of kings existing, not this specific king. Yes, for sure. Man, fucking <clears throat> what a good book. I feel like we could so keep talking good. about it all day, mm. but we're getting close to the midpoint of the episode and we have to move <laughs> on to the next one. I feel like we're going to come back to this and, yes. and compare it a little yes. bit, though. Freya, yes. Snowpiercer. So yes, well, it does have a lot in common with our second temple, uh, which I am. Which is also a fucking downer. Yeah, I have, I'm fucking... the one who suggested this temple. Sorry <laughs> at my fellow serpents, but this is a great film. So our second temple <laughs> is the film Snowpiercer, which is a science fiction film by Boon Joon Ho, who is the director of so Parasite. Yeah. And so this is from a while back now, I think 2011. And it's got an excellent mm -hmm. cast, including uh, Chris Evans and Tilda Swinton, almost unrecognizable mm -hmm. as Tilda yes, Swinton. Yes, unrecognizable. Is. <laughs> I'm just like, who are these people? Who are 
these people, there's this great detail where Boon John Ho was talking about how the hell he was trying to disguise the fact that Chris Evans is like a muscle machine. He's like, this man's meant to be now nourished. He's been living in the back carriages. We had to just put a big <laughs> coat on him and hope. And, uh, it doesn't really work. <laughs> it doesn't really work. So in this film... It is based apparently on a French series of science fiction graphic novels, but the plot is is different. And it's about a post-climate apocalyptic world in which the dregs of humanity that survive are only surviving because they are on a train that circumnavigates the world. I love the confidence of the world building in this. They're just like, you don't need to know. They're on a train. They're on a train. They're on a train. train. That's all you need to know. It's because it's allegorical. It's 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 about the allegory. We'll talk about this later. The train is a metaphor. The train is a metaphor. We're on board. We're on board. They go around around the world and everything that humanity needs to survive is on this train. So there are carriages that grow food. There are carriages that are water processes. And like unkindness of ghosts there is a very physical concrete structure of Mm -hmm. how society is set up and the working class who support the elite are at the back of the train and then the people for whom life is a bit more luxurious and they are carrying on more or less as quotes normal uh, are near the front of the train and at the very very front is somebody called Wilford whose train it is and I found this very oh. interesting, given that we had recently done our episode on Space Sweepers, yes. which is a similar kind of, in the wake yep. of the climate disaster, we will be reliant upon one man and his Elon private, and his private <laughs> wealth and technological advances. So the idea yeah, is this, that... This wh- one has never played a hobbit. So there was a little bit less of the like jarring, wait, you're meant to be... <laughs> Like, nice and bumbling. And now yeah. you're evil Elon Musk. Well, it was Thor and Oakenshield, technically, but he's yeah. a dwarf. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was, it was uh, Richard Armitage. Was episode playing. calling him a hobbit, though. I tried to correct you, and you were like, no, it's funnier to call him hobbit. <laughs> yes, Elon Musk, I, I was doing he's it from for the, the lols. I was not doing it to be absolutely Amazing. correct. But anyway, I thought he was a literal hobbit. No, no, he's a Anyway, <laughs> the, I am corrected. This, this film, so that's the basic setup, and the film has a relatively straightforward story engine, which is the story of a revolution. And so Curtis, played by Chris Evans, attempts to fight his way, along with uh, some friends and companions, to the front of the train, because the system as set up is deeply unfair, and they are attempting to revolt. Yeah, they keep, like, coming in and taking away their children, yeah, mm-hmm. fucked up. Which, fucked up. And then, like, if you protest, they will stick your arm out a window till it freezes and shatter it with a hammer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, part this of the film made like, some this choices. Fucked up. Yeah, part of the big metaphor of this uh, that I found, especially compared to Unkindness of Ghosts, is that if you're doing something this straightforward in terms of showing the stratification, then you contain them in a space. So yeah. you have the deadly expanse of space outside the generation ship. Nobody can get mm-hmm. out. You are mm-hmm. in space. Mm-hmm. And in this train, nobody can get out because the yeah. outside is freezing cold. It could, it might as well it be could, outer space. It might as well. Yeah, truly. And I was about to say some, a similar thing. Like you have that closed system. Where, and, They're and in a terrarium. A, you're in a terrarium, They're right? In a it's like yes. fucked up terrarium. This pressure pot, right? Yeah. Like, so yeah. you cannot escape the system. You The... Pressure builds up, pressure builds up. The only thing you can do is try to change it. Yep, that's what the allegory is, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is that you're trapped sure. in it. Yeah. So so yep. how um, did you two find this film? Ah! Oh, fucking God. This was the most depressing thing I've ever watched. I was like, like 
crushed and ground down into like just a puddle of cynicism by the end alex came to us by like halfway through and was like oh god and i came to the dot points about two-thirds of the way through this movie before we got into the cannibalistic backstory (laughs) and children as stakes yep (sighs) and i wrote in capital camel case letters now that's what i call grimdark seriously yeah like i haven't seen something this grimdark for a long time and like nothing good happens to anyone who's good or anyone who's bad no nothing good happens to any okay here was the highlight of the film for me which was that like there's a line early in the film when the kids are being taken away and someone comments oh wilford loves kids or wilford really likes kids and i sort of had this moment of like what what does that mean in what sense are we talking about likes kids because in a movie this dark it could go like real bad um and like it was only it well hold on and like then there's like another another point later on where it's reiterated that wilford really likes kids and i'm like "Mm, okay uh and i'm like so i'm like so is this like a pedophilia situation what's happening here it could be anything and then there's a line where the main character is like talking about how when they first got on the train, they were trapped in the back and he had to do some cannibalism and he found out that babies taste best. And I was like, oh shit, oh shit, this, this is worse than that. they've been making that. a big deal for the whole movie that mm. Wilford gets to eat steak. And he, we haven't seen steak. any cow. And we haven't seen any, well, we saw the, the corpses of the cows hanging in the back. Um, and we... Yeah, and, like, we've been looking for the kids, and we keep reiterating, like, where are the kids? Where are the kids? And the mother who is with them is looking for her child, and we haven't found the kids yet. Oh, they went to the front. Mm, What does that mean? And so then, and so you walk into the room where Wilford is, and he's cooking a steak, and you're like, oh, shit, he's literally just eating the children. And so there was this moment of great relief when you find out, oh, no, it's not cannibalism. He's just using the kids as slave labor. Thank God for that, sarcasm quotes. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting A one. dark movie. I, I think it's probably not deliberate, but I do found it really interesting the way they keep referring to the front of the train as the front. And, like, it's very much in a, like, upper decks, lower decks kind of thing. Yeah, but, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. the front is a good place if you are of that group. Like, if you are well, of the shall elite. I, but otherwise... Shall, shall, I, shall I pull out my, my thesis quote from this tent pole in that case, Freya? Well, so I, I would sure. say it outright. The, the point I was going to make okay. is that... For the people from the back of the train, being taken to the front means being cannon uh, fodder. Like, it's a war metaphor. Yeah. Ah, right. Yeah, that was the right, point I was right, making. Right, right. With... I didn't get that because you are the one who likes the war fiction. I know. And, I, and that's what I'm saying. I don't know if that's deliberate because, like, that's a very specific use of the word front. It yep. was just something that pinged as a pattern for me. That's cool. Hmm. hmm. Because hmm. it's, it's, it's a story that has more mobility in it, like forced mobility than no one's and the assumption there <laughs> mobility because they're on a train because they're on a train but hey. we we are pretty sure from the tone of the film that this is not going to end well for anybody but right. the people I... moving forward do have some hope that if they can make it to the front of the train their lives will, might change for the better right that they might get control over the resources which is essentially what mm. you're trying to do in a res- revolution when you're trying yes. to break the back of societal stratification you want to gain control of the means of production, mm-hmm. uh, including instead the of those dirty meat, capitalists. The frozen meat carriage. 
the frozen <laughs> and the where the carriage. fuck are all these animals the world building on this is just a disaster <laughs> it is it's a disaster it's a di- anyway anyway what was your thesis statement uh, the thesis statement from what's his name from Wilford to Curtis he says Curtis everyone has their preordained position and everyone is in their place except you he says to the man holding like a knife on him and mm. Curtis says back that's what people in the best place say to the people in the worst place. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yes. And we see in one of the scenes where the group of people who are going to the to the front of the train and at this point have taken Tilda Swinton hostage. <laughs> God, I love Tilda Swinton. <laughs> they are Me going too. through an, a school carriage. Which is that was where so, I got really fucked up for me because so, I was like, oh, yeah. "Wow, oh, yeah!" <laughs> but it's so visually completely distinct to the rest of yes. the film, and yep. this film does visual cues incredibly yep. well yep. and visual world mm. building incredibly well. Uh, and you can see that there's this bright, happy teacher who is teaching all these bright, well-fed, well-dressed children about the world on the train, and these are children of the train who have never actually lived outside yep. of it. Yeah, uh, and being taught about how Wilford saved everybody by putting them on the train, and you know Singing you are in the right songs. place, and you deserve to be in this place and be happy and have eggs and masks and be, you know, have a normal, carefree child's life. And because yeah. exactly as you pointed out, Alex, we've been hearing all of this like, oh, what do they do with the children? Oh, someone mm-hmm. ate a baby. Like the visual whiplash of seeing these yes, young, yes. well-nourished, completely innocent of what's going on children who are just being selectively fed propaganda yep. is yep. so effective. Yeah. It's horrifying. It's and singing yeah. cheery songs about how if the train ever stops, they'll all freeze and die. Okay. Yeah, yep, this is okay. fine. Yep. I also... I really like, so the the very ending, I was just, I had to sit there and be like, I'm not okay. So they managed to blow up the train, basically. Mm, um, yeah. Which I'm like, this, and this kill definitely the, helped. Kill this the last drugs of humanity. Yeah. yeah, this is fine. But then what you have is you have the two children, the teenage daughter of the locksmith and the young boy who's kind of propelled some of this adventure to be rescued from the front, mm. um, step out into the snow in their furs and we've been being told for the whole film that all life is dead. Mm. There is nothing out there. Um, people that we were shown the frozen corpses of people who escaped the train and made it like 500 feet and then flash froze to death. Mm. And we, they step out of the train. Everything's blown up. There's no food left. You kids are probably going to die. And on a ridge watching them, we see a polar bear. And this almost made you cry, right? And I'm just like, the fuck is wrong with you? Why would you do <laughs> yeah. this to me? Because and I was thinking about this to put it against the ending of Unkindness of Ghosts, mm. where Aster manages to escape in the wake of terrible devastation on the galaxy ship and make it back to the Earth that they have been being told is dead the whole time. Uh, and she's completely on her own. She's probably not going to manage to live very long. The human race is certainly not going to manage to live on the planet. But she made it out and the world is alive, even if she isn't. Yeah. And in many ways, I think that uh, that was more hopeful than Snowpiercer was because that was... not bloody hard, is it? Well, it's not (laughs) bloody hard to be more cheerful and hopeful than Snowpiercer, no. Um, Because like in Snowpiercer, like you have these two children who are the last humans alive 
because everyone else on the train we can presume is dead and there's this polar bear and the polar bear probably hasn't had a lot to eat the polar bear is gonna eat those children guys probably like well, maybe he might eat all the corpses that are on the train that just split itself open right behind them in fairness like if you're a polar well, bear you'll eat the dead hmm. things first you don't um, know that but... the dead things are there though no. you can but smell. also like the existence <laughs> of a polar bear suggests some yes. other elements of the exactly. food chain have also survived exactly well and that's my point i do want to tie it back a little bit though to a theme that we're seeing throughout these two and i think in the next one as well of societal stratification is propagated by those on the top of the chain in order to extract resources and luxury essentially from those below yeah mm. and the only way that they can maintain that differential is through force and violence and that's what we saw with wilford's you know it turns out he's the one who's been engineering these revolutions and he does one whenever he needs to cull the excess Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, which is fucked up. No, to me, that is the at, most. You know, that's the most grimdark thing about that movie. Yes, but if you look at like things that the U.S. government does, you're like, oh, I see. Because one of the things that speculative fiction lets you do is say something so extreme that you definitely can't say it about ac- the actual world, mm. right? Yeah. Um, and so, shall we talk about the Hunger Games? Sure, let's talk about the Hunger Games. Our fanfic tentpole <laughs> to bring to introduce you to yet another downer, dear listeners. Um, our fanfic fic. tentpole is a Hunger Games fic by Anakovsky called "To the Victor, the Spoil," and this is kind of a canon divergence AU, where mm-hmm. uh, what if Katniss had killed Peta in the the Hunger Games and how does she react to that and well almost uh, like what if she didn't the revolution didn't happen because of that right Mm. Uh, like i was i was getting to that in in a moment how does she react to that what is different about the story and what it says is that the revolution wouldn't have happened she wouldn't have been the mockingjay and they would have still been stuck in the same system because the game would have went would have gone the way that it's supposed to go instead of having to be averted like it was Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. so this fic is from the perspective of haymitch and it is kind of a outside perspective on how what katniss is going through in the wake of that huge trauma and i think it really is an an examination of the trauma that every single one of these victors is is living through um and katniss turns to like drugs and and parties and things to try to numb some of that that pain and trauma uh she is is sold by president snow to someone who uh wants to sleep with her um on a couple different occasions i think and that is another trauma on top of trauma because like power is going to exploit her in whatever way it can and now that it has its grip in her and it has been able to exploit her once through the trauma of the Hunger Games, like it's just going to like drain her dry until there's nothing left of her. Yes. And there's a tag that people use in Hunger Games, which is the revolution will be televised. Mm. And, you know, the lack of revolution will also be televised. Like this is kind of, in my mind, a fic about Katniss being assimilated into the system of victimizing these victors yeah Mm. like of turning them into like these machines for president snow and the system yeah and i think what the hunger games does and what this fic sort of takes to its natural extreme is it again says 
okay, there is this illusion of mobility that if you are from mm, the outer yes. districts, like, just think of that visual in the films of them being on the train and traveling yes. into the capital and seeing the world change and then seeing this beautiful, colorful luxury. You, if you are from an outer district, you can be used in the Hunger Games. And then even if you are a victor and the idea is, oh, if you're a victor, then you're a celebrity and you get to live in the like, capital forever with your family. And, you know, you you have made it. You have traveled from the outer districts into the center. Even then, it is not an assimilation. You are always different. You are always exploited. And this is, yep. this is a fic about exploitation. Yes. Freya, do you, do you want to talk about this Miss L. Woodswin? post did you the one who put this here I think yeah know. I put that so I put that there this is a, a tumblr post that I saw that I just sort of saw come up on my tumblr feed while I was thinking about this story mm-hmm. um because I haven't actually read the prequel um Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes which is apparently a right. prequel to the Hunger Games about President Snow and I don't know very much about it but this was a, a post that sort of caught my interest that somebody said, I am once again thinking about how Suzanne Collins went back to her 10-year-old series to publish a prequel to say, just in case it wasn't clear, you are the capital. Um, You are not the districts. You are not the districts. If you are, yeah, (laughs) somebody who is thinking that you are the person who is downtrodden, you are the districts. And look, this is, uh, I don't know a lot about the context of that and I haven't read the prequel, but it was very interesting to sort of see that and to think about what Suzanne Collins may have been trying to accomplish with that story, especially when you look at this fic, which is again, very, very depressing about Mm. saying, even if you are here surrounded by luxury, there is still always a stratification and an exploitation and a difference in power at play. Well, and it made me think like you saying that now a little bit of some of the stuff I see coming past on Twitter around like, uh, the Chinese government and the Uyghur Muslims, uh, you know, oh, look, everything is fine because, look, we can televise this famous poet and thus nobody is suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this story is about once you are past the worst of it, in quotes, and embedded in this exploitative luxury, how do you try and protect other people who are in that situation? So it's about Hamish saying, okay, what can I do to try and help protect yeah. Katniss? And he ends All up sleeping with her at her request survive. because, yeah, yeah because right. she says, you know, I don't want my first time to be with someone that I have been sold to. I want it to be somebody that I know. And, right. in, and there's and some really interesting conversations and like things in his head where he's like, well, surely you should go to Finnick because Finnick yeah, is the one who has been like, end- he's good at sex because he has been endlessly exploited through this system. And like, right. you know, it, it's very depressing, but the character interactions in it have this core of sweetness within a whole lot of this is what is necessary to survive yeah it makes you think about the concept of agency right yes Mm. yes yes the ways that we as authors get told that we have to write characters quote unquote with agency um and i think that that can be very limiting particularly to authors from marginalized groups Mm. who see that they don't have agency against the systems that are oppressing them always Mm. and who still want to be able to tell stories about that that aren't just the ones where you lead a revolution and tear it down. What is it like to actually live under the system and rebel purely by surviving and by being kind in in the context that you can gain control of? Yeah, Uh, yeah. if you haven't got any large agency in the form of being able to start a revolution, what can you do for yourself? And right, it is a difficult right. read because we are used to Katniss 
as a young adult heroine who does have quite a lot of agency in what she does eventually. And then this, she is grasping at what tiny bits of agency are still left to her, like choosing who she sleeps with and choosing how she moves through the world and what she uses to cope. And I will give us the theme quote from but this one. And I was then just about to ask. Very good. <laughs> yeah, so this one, Katniss is talking to Hamish to try to figure out, you know, did this happen to you too? So she asks, well, did it happen to you being forced to become a prostitute for Snow? And he says, no. They killed everyone I cared about after the games, so they didn't have any leverage. Which yeah. is just to say, they will control you in some way. Mm. They will take things from you and you can't, you can't stop it. So I think we brought this up a little bit earlier then. And let's move on to, we have a little bit of time. We're going to have to go fairly quickly. Um, Speculative fiction lets us talk about things from our lives and our world. It's always of the moment. It doesn't matter if we're writing historical or far future. Mm. It's about us now today. Mm. Um, Let's talk about that. How, How do we see this being used to talk about stratification? Like, how is it done? So the great thing about about science fiction and fantasy, which um, we have kind of alluded to a little bit, is how allegorical they can be. Mm. And like you said earlier, how it allows you to say a lot of things much more directly. Um, because if you are writing about the real world and about the, the current situation, there's a lot of complexity and nuance that you have to sort of dig into and, and untangle. Um, but if you're writing in genre fiction, it allows you to make the point in a more streamlined kind of way, mm. uh, in the same way that fairy tales make points in quite streamlined sorts of ways. Mm. Sure. And and you mentioned, obviously, Macy, that Unkindness is doing something quite specific around Antebellum America. And I'm thinking about um, uh, Lara Lena Donnelly's Ambelow series, which does a very mm-hmm. specific thing, again, about like the rise of the Weimar Republic in Berlin. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, but it's a secondary world. It's not actually Berlin, but it kind yeah, of is. Right. And so you can make the point, you can make specific points uh, while not having to accurately and fully reflect everything that is going on in the real world and i have put in brackets here the ghost of colonialism is pointedly haunting the genre yes (laughs) because i was thinking uh, about baru cormorant as well (laughs) yeah i mean and that's a really fucking important societal stratification that we haven't talked about a ton yeah um which is you know the settler versus um indigenous population um, and that's something that I think we sometimes see done fucking terribly. I'm thinking of the Avatar movie. Yeah. Not the Avatar The Last Airbender, the, the terrible blue aliens movie. Mm. God, fuck um, that movie. And oh, I'm yes. Just, oh. <laughs> uh, but yes, Barry Cormorant does that well. And have either of you read uh, C.L. Clarke's book, The Unbroken, yet? I want it. I have not. Yes, I haven't yet. read it yet, but from all I've seen ah. of it, it looks like it does some really cool stuff as well with um, discussing... Uh, the complexities of existing under colonialism and under settlers, mm. which looks really good. I'm looking forward to that. And I think that even Alex, the books that you have been reading lately, the Robert Jackson Bennett ones, deal a little bit in this. Um, yes. In like the 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 long aftermath of a revolutionary war in which the colonized nations fought back and won and started killing the gods of the old oppressors. Right, right, because the the 
nations that had the gods obviously like had tons and tons of power but once the gods started dying they lost their power and then this nation that didn't have any gods but that had tons of technology was able Mm -hmm. to become the global superpower and now they are committing a lot of the same colonial atrocities that had been committed against them um maybe not quite as much they seem like they're trying to do a better job by installing like local yeah it's like local governors and have happening in their wars basically yeah and some yeah. of the, ca- the characters are kind of wrestling with that and trying to come to terms with what has happened mm. um, and another a short story i wanted to recommend that deals really interestingly with um india during the raj was uh shiv ramdas's and now his lordship is laughing did we discuss this one during our strange horizons episode? yes yes very, it was very briefly the... mm. it wasn't one of the tentpole ones i don't think but i remember uh, reading it, was, it yeah yes it was very very good story mm. but i think that there's also kind of you can go to two extremes when you're trying to dig into some particular wound i want to say um in our world and i see in some cases like the literalization and the exaggeration of a existing divide and here i'm thinking about how handmaid's tale yes. deals with gender and sexuality as yes. an oppressed class mm. um and then the second way to do that like alex was saying is to make it the allegory to make it the the metaphor like the train is the world mm-hmm. there's a closed <laughs> system that you can't escape yeah yes i want to have a brief little discussion about revolutions in the context mm. of narratives about social stratifications so this was my question at the top do you think you have to have one in one sum in one form or another if you are presenting a society like this so hunger games has it the fanfic was doing something very specific in that it was saying what if not but you know all three of these temples to one extent or another have an attempt at revolution on a small or large scale i think that a revolution is a very convenient plot structure to, to like from a from a structural like craft perspective like right. oh it, and a revolution happens it gives you some beats to follow just as it would if you had a romance plot and you're mm. following the beats of the romance plot well and i want to say that a lot of times when you're setting up a societal stratification i don't want to say necessarily the easy thing but like Hmm. Okay, how can I unpack this? I have like 15 different things going through my head. Tell me if I make no sense. Okay. When you do something in a book, you have limited space, unless you're mm-hmm. 900 pages of friendship. Um, <laughs> oh, how dare you? <laughs> okay, maybe we'll stop having, having asides for a second. You have limited space. So things have to be for a purpose, more or less. If you are develop, if you are devoting sufficient energy to build a societal stratification like this into your book it has to be for something Mm. yes Um, and or rather that is the expectation of genre um and the thing that it is for generally is either being or creating and i'm thinking of hench here the antagonist Mm. so either the system is the antagonist or there is an avatar of the system who is the primary antagonist, like the lieutenant in Unkindness of Ghosts, mm-hmm. like our superhero terrible dude in Hench. Um, that's what it's for. Mm. Now, if you have an antagonist who is created by this system to be in power over you, how can you fight them without it being, in some sense or another, a revolution? Mm. 
when you say that, the thing that immediately springs to mind, Macy, is a quote by J.K. Chesterton, which is that fairy tales don't tell us that dragons exist. They tell us that dragons can be killed. Like, mm-hmm. like stories like this are showing us that, are, are giving us the tools for how to fight back. And they're giving us the stories for, like, what we need to, to know how to do that. Right. Mm. And there's not much that is narratively satisfying about somebody punching down. Yeah, like yeah, a, there's a, that too. The fight of a protagonist has to be somebody punching up, and so there has yeah. to be an up to punch. Yeah, we love an underdog. Yeah, but I was but, thinking uh, about this in... Sorry, Macy, do you want to keep going? Well, I don't know. I'm going to also just register that I think that's... To, to some degree, I think this is bullshit, and publishing should be more open to buying narratives that do more interesting things than purely this form of agency but Mm. like Mm. i i want to say that i don't think this is the only way to do it i just want to say that explicitly Mm. i think that's just what we see bought and sold yeah and i think for me a lot of this comes back to the fact that world building is not a story so if you are creating yeah sorry (laughs) (laughs) but if you are creating a stratification for something you are building a society the story comes from what happens when that status quo shifts? And so I think yeah. a lot of people have ideas for that they think is an idea for a story, but they're like, okay, so what if society was set up like this? What if I come up with my own, you know, caste, caste system, stratification system, you know, isn't that great? And that's, but that is page one. The story yeah. is what happens when the status quo gets disrupted. And that's why you see a lot in like YA, especially, but other genre things of, well, here's this system that I've made up. And my protagonist is somebody who doesn't fit into this system or is in this level of the system and wants to be here. Like, I, I apologize, Macy, but a world building is not end story. <laughs> a story is what happens when the discrepancy exists and, yeah, yeah. and then does something about it. And a story is also characters reacting to stuff is my sort of perspective on that. And so like you have this system and you have characters moving through it. How do they react to it? What do they do about it? What do they want to change? What do they support about it? Mm. So world building is not a story. A story requires a change or a flip point or a pivot or something. A story requires movement. But I argue that the movement can be in the shattering of illusions of a protagonist. Mm-hmm. Um, and here I want to pick up the ones who walk away from Omalas and also the Astolat fanfic um, victory condition. Back to episode yep. one bullshit. Um, wow. <laughs> wow. Back to our roots. Back to episode one, where the movement of the story is the destruction of the illusions of yes. the privileged characters. And it's always the privileged characters because the ones who are not privileged already fucking know um Mm. and it is the luxury the destruction of the luxury of ignorance yes Mm. but i think you can't can be a story and this is just just spitballing here but i think you can't that story would not have worked as well if it had just been about the destruction of illusions of a protagonist who then is like well i should change the world because then that, that becomes a savior narrative you have to have the second character the one who is doing the shattering and who has come from the place of oppression. Mm. Yeah, I think, yeah, this is something that we are still learning mm. as a publishing industry. Stop telling the stories of the oppressed without the oppressed present and speaking. Mm-hmm. Yes. Stop uh, just gagging them. Yes, you put uh, that yeah. much better than me. <laughs> what else do we want to touch on before we wrap? Um, 
don't uh, think I need to talk about Discworld. I don't think I need to talk about Ectopius with stratification. They miss. <laughs> okay, L- final dot point, which Macy has put in there as a little treat I for have... me, which is Freya, come talk to me about Snowpiercer versus Les Miserables. <laughs> uh, because Les Miserables, revolution specifically. Yes, Les Miserables is one of my favourite pieces of media that contains a revolution, even though it is quite a depressing <laughs> revolution in that it doesn't really go anywhere and everybody yeah. dies. Uh, not unlike Snowpiercer. <laughs> yeah. Just but yeah. I think that, uh, the thing, even even outside of the um, revolution part of Les Mis, Les Mis is all about societal stratification. It's about two four six zero one. Look down, look down. Yes, you're standing yes. in your grave. Yes, Macy can quote far too much of Les Mis. Oh, um, don't even start. We could get, we could be here all day. <laughs> Alex is sitting it. there, like going, "Oh God, it's going to be like Dublin all over again." <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> cornered them and sung forcibly one in each ear for like a non-trivial amount of time. It was good times, good times. <laughs> what was the point we were making about this? What was the point? Um, what was the point? Yeah, the point about Les Mis. Is setting and Les Mis. for a yes. story about character. Yes, mm. because the Les Mis, the revolution, is setting. It is not the point of the story. It is not the story engine. There is a revolution that takes place, and it's making a societal point. But it is still a book about individuals and characters, and also God. But you know, that's just that's just Victor Hugo for you. <laughs> uh, that is Victor Hugo, mm. and that's the thing. Like Snowpiercer, the revolution is there, but we wouldn't care about it, and if we were just presented with these cardboard cutout characters that are fighting their way to the front you care mm. about them because you they you are presented with individuals who are going through something right right you care about curtis as the struggling reluctant leader who doesn't want this uh cinnamon roll of a boy who looks up to him to look up to him too much and you care about the mother of a child who has been lost who wasn't meant to be on this quest but forced her way on because she wants to find her child mm-hmm. you care about the drunkard father and his drunkard teenage daughter because they are just trying to cope with the situation as humans as best they can. Like, you care about them because they're people. Mm. Right. Yeah, so the And story that's is... the only reason that this amount of grim darkness is even remotely palatable. Yes, absolutely. And that's, I think that that's, holds true for all of these. They are very, they are grimdark stories. They have a very dark story engine and in often a dark ending but you care about it because you engage with the individual characters. A lesson for us all. (laughs) Hey everybody, thanks for joining us for this episode of Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely, extremely deep literary merit. We went some darker places this episode than usual. There are systems and situations in all of our lives which make it hard to live the way we might prefer, and authors like Rivers Solomon are very, very good at spinning out that pain so we can try to better understand and acknowledge it. I think that's important sometimes too, as well as the joy that we try to bring. It's important to listen to one another and to try to reflect on how we can undermine the systems of oppression in our own lives, for ourselves and for others. But enough of that for now. We have some even more exciting topics to talk about in upcoming episodes. On the next episode, two weeks hence on June 30th, we'll be discussing Diana Wynne-Jones and transformation. 
If you want to prepare in advance, one of the tent poles for that episode is Howl's Moving Castle. So if you have friends who are into stuff like that, maybe give them a heads up. In the meantime, feel free to continue the conversation with us. Questions, comments, breathless adulations. Contact us at serpentcast at gmail.com, at serpentcast on Twitter and Tumblr. And if you enjoy the podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. And a reminder that you still have three days to get questions in for the next extravaganza. And by the way, let's be real for a sec. The fact that you are still here, still fighting after the past couple of years, that takes strength. It really, really does. You are stronger than these systems that want to make you small, that want to make you hurt, make you give up. And I'm really proud of you. <laughs>